Today I feel a little bit more nervous than other times, especially after last uh, Sunday afternoon's uh, career day. Uh, we had an uh, incredible first career day for youth. Uh, we had uh, 10 of our own and then three outsiders, and the quality of our speakers was is, uh, more than I expected. I didn't know we have so many uh, professionals. And uh, after hearing their professional presentation of uh, their vocation, I was so intimidated because these people know how to articulate. And I, compared to them, I feel I'm not a prof that professional. So today, before I, well, I, I feel more nervous. But here, here we are. That, you know. For summer 2019, we've been studying stories of Ruth and Samuel. And Ruth and Samuel, they are minor characters in the Bible, yet they have a major significance in our redemptive history. Ruth was a Moabite widow. Think about it, Moabite widow, double marginalized person. Not just a woman, widow, and Gentile. Yet, through her faith in Hesed, loving kindness to her mother-in-law, Peter, Naomi, she became symbol of a virtuous woman in Israel and great-grandmother of King David. Samuel came to this world through the tearful prayers of his barren mother, Hannah, and provided a godly leadership in a very critical time of Israel. Today, we come to the last study of Samuel, and starting next Sunday, for our fall season, we're going to study Paul's letters. And this year, we're going to study Ephesians. And then those of you, I know it's a last long weekend of summer or out, I ask you, I, I encourage you to uh, check out online sermon later because I'm going to preach on very uh, controversial, yet very, very blessed topic of predestination next Sunday. So please pay attention. So last, last summary, uh, last story of Samuel, it's not a happy ending like uh, Ruth. While the story of Ruth ended wonderfully with the God's blessing of an heir and the restored honor and commun you know, community celebration and shining future, the last story of Samuel gives us a sovereign, sober warning that wakes us up from our once again unserious, complacent, amateurish faith in God. Today's story once again remind us that we all have to be serious about faith like a professional. Otherwise, there is a dire consequences. So why should we be serious about our faith? In today's story, 1 Samuel chapter 8 gives us two warnings and two, I mean two warnings and one wonder. Two warnings and one wonder. So let's see the first of uh, last lessons from the Samuel's life. The first warning, let's look at the first one to five. Let me read. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his born was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after the dishonest game and accepted the bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together 
and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old. Your sons do not follow your ways. Now appointed a king to lead us, such as all other nations have. The first warning in Samuel's story originated from the fact that he failed to raise his sons to be faithful and godly. This first warning was more than surprising. It's shocking and sad. Because if there is a one mistake or defect that we did not expect from Samuel, it would be parenting mistake or parental failure. Why? First of all, he grew up under a godly mother. He had a great parenting. From the first moment, movement in it, of his conception in his mother's womb, he heard the mother's prayer. He was constantly reminded of her story of God's graciousness. He is the uh, evidence of God's kindness and God's victory over barrenness. He had a, and he was dedicated as a Nazarene. He had a, one of the most grateful and godly mothers. And second, he grew in the, in the holy sanctuary of Shiloh ever since he was a little kid when he was weaned from his mother. He heard the voice of God audibly at the age of 12. Since then, he talked to and walked with God and everyone knew he was God's special servant and almost favorite. Third, he saw the parental mistake of his teacher Eli, and he witnessed how God punished two unfaithful sons of Eli, the Hophni and the Phineas. So if anybody knew the, the dire consequence of a bad parenting, it was Samuel. And then forced the sins of his sons were the very sin that he intentionally guarded for his whole life. If you look at the Samuel's farewell conversation, and later in chapter 12, verse 3 and 4, listen this. Samuel said, Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed, the, the new king, the first king Saul by this time. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted bribe to make me shut my eyes? Ah, if I have done any of these things, I'll make it right. And people responded, you have not cheated or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. So this scene of bribery and injustice is something Samuel specially guarded and now his children are committing. And fifth surprise that Samuel somehow made this friend, his sons, the leaders, literally the judges of a uh, in southern Israel. What's wrong with Samuel here? Samuel's blindness to sins of his sons is a more than common, almost universal parental mistake. I say because all parents fail. You, you know that, right? If you, well, maybe soldiers said, no, my parents didn't fail. Well, well please let me know how they fail, because you know, I'm also failing my kids. And they fail many times. So I definitely want to know. And uh, you know, Samuel, uh, so, it's Samuel's 
So first warning is Samuel's blindness is children's sin. I call the blind spot. It's a telltale sign of a deceitfulness of a human heart. You know, we are so gullible to our own perception. Jeremiah 17.9 said, The heart is a deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Heart is the most deceitful thing. My heart knows how to deceive me. And that's what the, you know, Jeremiah cried out. So now how can we protect ourselves from our most deceitful heart and self-deception? If a great spiritual giant like Samuel falls to self-deception, how much more are we going to fall into our own respective self-deception? So how do you do? You know, uh, beginning of the year, we bought a new car uh, for Laurel, our middle daughter, because she's about to graduate. Oh, she actually graduated, and now she's still working. And uh, so we haven't had a new car for a while. So this new car has a things called the blind spot warning system. And anytime any car is on the blind spot uh, position, on the uh, side mirror, there is a light comes. It's a, you don't have to turn your, you know, I don't have to turn my neck anymore, you know, because right there, there is a blind spot. And there's a, that's the what, you know, I had a very, many, I have to say, not just a few, many close call with a blind, uh, blind spot accident. So question I have for all of us, is what is your blind spot warning system in your life against your own deceitful heart? I want to talk about the accountability. You know, accountability is critical necessity in life. It's the only way to safeguard against our pre-poor judgment, unconscious motiva motivation, and the self-deception. G.K. Chesterton once said, love is not blind, love is a bound. How do you like it? Love is not blind. He said the last thing that love is, love, that, that is the last thing that love is. He said true love, is a bound, and it is, it, it, uh, the more the love is bound, the less is blind. You know, loving someone means being committed to that person. When you love someone, you don't stay in the romantic ignorance or complacency. Love is active and seeks understanding of your beloved. You seek to know the other person so that you can make that person happy or fulfilled, right? So love is never blind. Love is actually growing. It's actually bright. Love is smart. And love never stops caring the other person, especially when that person makes a mistake. Now, spiritual accountability is incredibly important in our spiritual journey because God never intended that we would battle our sin single-handedly. God expected us to fight against our sin and temptation and deceptions through the accountability. 
You know, the very pride that keeps you from taking off our mask, your mask, and then getting real, is the same pride that causes us to fall into the sin. Humbling oneself by letting others into one's life and allowing them to help you and hold you accountable will definitely release God's sanctifying and transforming grace. You know, this is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer he said, the, uh, a man who confesses his sins in presence of a brother or sister knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He is experiencing presence of God in reality of other person. As long as I am by myself in confession of my sin, everything remains in, in the clear. That means you think you already you kind of confess the sin. But a real healing of the sin comes when we do in presence of a brother. Sin has to be brought in life and brought into the light. You know, accountability is incredibly important. When I look at the, uh, I'm a, I love history and especially I love Christian you know, history. Do you know the uh, uh, development of a monastic movement in the Christian history? You know the monastery, right? Monks. Initially, it all started in the early church with the Desert Fathers. And they were so-called hermits, or uh, Greek word, the Aramite monks. Aramite is a desert, sort of an individual kind of a monk. They practice individually the ascetic, self-denying, you know, spirituality. But very soon, they realized that that's not effective. That's not how you become holy. So they began to form a community, and they call it Cenobite, or basically means common life monk. This is how the monastery, you know, monastery movement began in the West and then uh, in Christian history. Even monks realized that you are you become holier with together, not individually, and. You know, I'm, I, some of you, I, those of you new, I grew up in South America. So whatever going on in South America, like Venezuela, my, uh, my adopt, you know, is more, in my second sort of a home country, is really dear to me. And the one thing I know about South America, they really try to establish a democracy. Do you know many South American countries copy the U.S. Constitution, literally? Yet, they have a hard time to establish democratic you know, uh, 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 politics in, that, uh, uh, in, their, in their areas. Why? What makes democra uh, democracy works better in America than other countries? Is it because we are more ethical? Americans are more ethical than others? By looking at our president, I cannot say so. Or are we smarter than other people? Once again, by looking at our president, I'm not sure. <laughs> Okay, I believe, and many agree, American democracy works well because we have a healthy skepticism or real honest realism about human nature, and we know human beings are fallible. We know human beings are self-deceiving. So we installed check and balance system in our political system better than anybody and we practice it. 
So American democratic system works better simply because of accountability. So that's what we're trying to do in our church. And those of you been, been hearing about our church, our church is all about house church. In the house church, we have, you know, recently last, uh, last two uh, Fridays, I've been hearing same same thing in the each house church shepherd that is a basic commitment of our church is SOS. We call SOS. What is SOS? Show up, open up, seek out. You show up, no matter what. I mean, of course, when you're sick, you can. But you know, even if you're really sick, we encourage you to show up. Don't worry about infection. We'll take it. <laughs> We have a lot of doctors, so we can, we can, we can handle. But the point is, uh, sh show up. But sometimes we cannot show up. I understand. I don't show up. But when you cannot show up, at least let us know why you didn't come. You know, because we are making intentional community. And uh, I know a lot of people don't tell, you know, I mean, when you have a family gathering and you don't show up, don't you tell your family members why you are not showing up? You know, our house church is a way that we really try to become a spiritual family. Our church, we named our church Forest, especially with the idea of a redwood forest, because I'm from Northern California. I'm a Bay Area guy. And... Uh, you know, Redwood Forest, Redwood is tall, gigantic. You know, those of you who have been to the Redwood, you know, that the Muir Wood and the Sequoia Canyon and all, Kings Canyon and Sequoia, you know, National Park, you know the humongous tree that, you know, cars go through. Redwood trees are tall and humongous and old, yet the roots grow vertical, I mean, not vertically, but horizontally, and they lock each other. And that's how we want to you know, become kind of a community that we really connect each other in the root level so that we will not, you know, whatever temptation and then challenges comes that if you're going to fall, others will hold you bottom that you will not fall. And how can he do that unless we share ourselves, our shortcomings and mistakes? And so when you, can, when you cannot show up, please tell us, you know. I know sometimes you don't have a good excuse. Times like that, just tell us, I'm under the weather. We'll get it. We are not going to, you know, judge you that, oh, you missed how many. That's not for family to do. Family understand. Family, we accept you no matter what. Our house church are committed to loving you and, this, you know, encouraging you to go to the journey that Christ called you to hold your phone. But please let us know. So I want everybody today in this service, next time you miss house church, please let them know. Not just the food, of, you know, the food preparation, but so that others can continue to pray for you. One of the greatest difficulty or obstacles in my conversion from Buddhism to Christianity, you know, I was a Buddhist until I was age of 17, I was a really happy Buddhist. I was actually a very arrogant Buddhist, especially toward the Christians. Because I, my Christian friends around me, their life looked miserable. 
you know, because of Sunday I'm free, but they have to go to church, and the one was a pastor's son, and he, every time I said, oh, I'm planning to do this, and the, oh, can you wait, can you wait for me? Because as soon as I, you know, whatever is all, church program is over, I can get out, and we can go to see all this. I'm sorry, we are teenage boys, so we are checking out all those, uh, you know, those are ready to arm movies and stuff. I'm sorry, it's kind of going beyond. All the, you know, those are very borderline activities. And so he envied me. And so when I'm, you know, becoming, when I'm receiving Christ, that means I know that Christians, they go to church every Sunday for three hours. And then the, the praising, today our praising is awesome, but the, a list of churches that are praisings that I know for forever. And then they sing the same song like uh, four or five times, and then leaders sometimes say, let's do it all over. And that just kills. And then, then the, somebody, old guy, comes and then gives a, a, a talk that, okay. For, and then after that, you have to give me your money. <laughs> so the hardest part of my conversion is not intellectual. It's not even about Jesus. It's that, I can no longer be individual religious person. Being a Christian means changing my social practice. But after being a Christian, you know one thing I found out? I become most me, most authentic self in the community. I thought in order to be real meaningful me, I have to get away from people, but I found that I become a most meaningful when I'm in loving community where I share my struggles and also my joys. So accountability, that's the gosh, you know, remedy for our deceitful heart. That's the gosh way of a blind spot warning system. I hope we all install it in our life. The second warning, if a first warning is about blind spot, the second warning is a dark spot, or I call it cancer spot. When Israelites get together, they say, you are old, your sons, verse 5, you do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all other nations have. Verse 6, when they said that give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord, and then Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Before I explain the second warning from the, uh, mis from the mistake of Israelite, I want to just uh, 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 point out one short but a very significant spiritual help here in verse 6. When Samuel heard this displeasing bad news from Israelite, what did he do? He prayed to the Lord. What do you do when you hear something bad, something really disturb you, something that really makes you sad and angry? What do you do? Like me, do you vent to your whoever? Or like somebody, do you just become a passive aggressive? Or do you just, you know, become a, you know, very victim mental, you know, become a victim? What to me? Once again, you know, world is against me. Kind. What do you do when you hear something displeasing? 
Samuel prayed to the Lord. Amen. It's the truth. It's not a cliche. Disappointment in life means God's appointment in our life. Whatever you're disappointed, anytime you're disappointed, God is calling you and come and talk to you. We can talk. And this story, one thing I find very hard, uh, uh, dear, encouraging is that uh, when Samuel was displeased and talked to God, God is kind of comforting Samuel. And they are commiserating together in a way. Samuel, it's not you, it's me. And Samuel said, oh, really, God? Isn't it? I feel like uh, this is uh, a bonding friendship. Now, what's wrong about the request about having a king? Uh, some Christian churches taught their you know, uh, children that it was wrong for Israel to have. Actually, that's wrong. God did want Israel to have a king, even from the beginning. Uh, for instance, even in Genesis 17, God promised Abraham and Sarah that many kings will come from them. And Jacob and Balaam, in, once again Genesis, confirmed that Judah will be tribe that rules Israel in Genesis 49 and Numbers 24. So before God already told the kingship or monarchy is in the future. And especially when you look at the uh, uh, Deuteronomy 17, long before time of uh, uh, Samuel and then you know the king, first king Saul, God said, verse 15, be sure to appoint over king. I'm sorry, we didn't put the 15 here. Be sure to appoint over king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from you, your fellow Israel. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israel. God is saying that king is not a popularity contest or even the matter of a competence. It has to be somebody who understands my covenant with you. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself and then make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not, go, you are not to go back that way again. He must not make many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must accumulate a large amount of silver and gold. And verse 18, by the way, this is exactly later uh, who? Solomon failed God. The wisest king of all, he had many wives, according to first king, and they misled him. He had many foreign wives. Why he had many foreign wives? He accumulated a lot of wealth. In order to protect his wealth, he made all the surrounding nation, in-law nations. He married all the foreign, prince, foreign princesses of the surrounding nations to protect his wealth that God gave. Instead of protecting wealth with a faith, he kind of protected wealth with a human political strategy. As a result, all these foreign princesses with their pagan religions came and the priests came and Amazing thing is, Solomon stopped believing God at the end of his life. So I'm not sure whether I'll see Brother Solomon or, you know, in, in heaven. But point is, this is what God said earlier. And then verse 18, God said what kind of king should be. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. 
taken from that of a Levitical priest. It is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and this decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelite and turn from the law or no turn from the law to the right or left. Then he and his descendant will reign a long, long time over kingdom Israel. So what God told them about king is that you need to have a king who are king who is who supposed to meditate in God's word and then try to bring that God's word as a center of Israel's life. Just like a garden of an garden of Eden has God's you know, command, the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the center. And Israelite, what did they ask? Their request of king is not just a king who cares about God's law, but king what? Can make their life safe and convenient and prosperous. Just like the other nations. Verse 5, they didn't appoint a king to lead us such as all other nations have. Instead of a, 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 a commentator said, instead of a Torah-focused king, they want Ananite, a Canaanite king, who is really good at fighting and good at bringing wealth to the country. They want a king not to move forward <coughs> With the God's covenant, they want the king move away from the God's covenant. Israelite requests a king. It really shows a major, major breakdown and major, major breakdown in their covenant. That is, they want to have a worldly security more than spiritual identity as a God's holy nation and the kingdom of a priest for all nations. Do you remember Exodus 19 when Israel successfully liberated, you know, came from Egypt and they came to Mount Sinai and God told them that, you know, I chose you over all whole entire world, not because you are stronger or you are smarter or you are better than others, but because actually you are small and I have a mercy on you. And the reason I chose you, so that you will be the you will be the holy nation of a priest for all nations. And the God's, you know, God's plan for Israel in promised land is a covenant that you obey me and I'll make sure that you will grow and you will bless, I'll protect you. You seek me first and my kingdom, I will make sure that everything is in place and added unto you. That's what God promised. So Christian life, or any, anybody, any, Christian life simply means this. It's a covenantal relationship with God. It's a partnership with God. And I, we have, unless God works in my life, my life shouldn't work. You know, Christian life is a partnership with God. 
I put God as my first in obedience, my first priority, and God will take care of the rest of me. And that is the deal. Now, question. Many of us feel very, very insecure about such a partnership. Because as we know, from time to time, seems like our security is not, God is not really holding our God's uh, part. And times like that, we are thinking about our own way. We try to really protect ourselves in our own way. Israelite, instead of obeying God, they've been observing the Canaanite and how they make their living in the, in the promised land. And they're basically asking God, forget about covenant. We just want to live like our neighbors. And that's why God was so, Samuel was displeased and God was saddened. Did you forget why you are here? We are here to build a promised land, a holy land. And here, we want to bring everyone to understand God's grace and the majesty and glory. They wanted, the Israelites at this moment, they wanted to select a leader or king who can make them more convenient than committed to God. And now, what does it, how, how do we take this? This is, this is a, a Satan's, you know, a, a tactics of deceiving us. So second, you know, cancer, cancer spot or dark spot or warning in this passage is this. Here we see the economy of a sin. What is the economy of a sin? Satan wants want us to think a compromise will solve our problem. We don't have to go God all the way. We can kind of help God with our own wisdom and then, you know, whatever common sense. Guess what happened? Now, God tells Samuel, rest of the passages, tell them what it will cost them when they have a king like that. When I grant their request, and then verse 9, verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for king. He said, this is what the king will reign over you, will claim as his reign. He will take your sons and make them servants, serve with his chariot and horses. They will run in front of his chariot. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties. Others plow his ground and reap his harvest. Still others make weapons of war and equipment for his chariot. He will take your daughters and to be uh, perf perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your field and the vineyard and olive groves and give them to his attendant. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to your officials and attendants. Your male and female servant and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flock and you, will, you yourself will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In God's warning to Israel, Samuel said one word repeatedly, that is, the king will take everything from you. Six times 
He will take your sons. He will take your uh, daughters. He will take your property. He will take your everything until he will make you slaves. You know, that's the economy of a sin. Satan somehow sells us sin in a way that makes us, the, I mean, that like a crook, you know, a used car salesperson. Satan always seeks to maximize our estimation of a benefit of a sin or compromise. And trying to really convince us the price of sin is a minimum. That's what you know, Satan did in the Garden of Eden. And then when we choose a sin, what happens? Sin makes us pay dearly. You know, when we think we can use a sin, when we can think we can use a compromise, when we can think that my own you know, wisdom or tactic for life above God's will, while retaining full control of it, Guess what? Sin quickly gains a control over us, and we become its slaves. You know, a Texan pastor once said that uh, while he waiting at the uh, ride at the uh, Six Flags, he told his friends that uh, sin is like this uh, ride. Price is too high, and the ride is too short. <laughs> you know, sin is like that. Price too high at the end, and the pleasure is so short. C.S. Lewis, one times, uh, C.S. Lewis in his well-known sermon called The Weight of Glory said this, God cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. There in love, he claims all. There is no bargaining with God. Whatever we create our own control area, God doesn't bless. God just leaves us until we experience the pain. Until we know that, God, I made a big mistake. Help us. But oftentimes, the world and sin and people around us, they claim to sell us the idea that being a fully devoted followers of Christ it's really inconvenient. It really doesn't work. But guess what? That's what Christianity is about. If a people around us don't see difference in my life and your life than theirs, something is wrong with us. You know, 1 Peter 3.15, Peter said, In your heart, revere Christ as a Lord. And then, People will ask you the reason of a hope in your heart and then be ready to give them the answer for that reason of the hope with a gentleness and humility. If you and I live a Christian life, right? If a forest really follow God's vision of being a good sheep to Jesus and also being a good shepherd to others, people around us, our own families, relatives, and friends, co-workers, you know, a classmate, they will ask that, why do you go, why Friday you are not available? Friday evening you are not available, or, you know, why you spend so much, whatever. They will question about you. 
And then we show them why we do what we do. The rest of, uh, let me bring a, a conclusion here. Now, we learned the two warnings from the Samuel's last lesson. First one, warning about blind spot, self-deception. The other one, cancer spot. We try to be like a world. We try to copy the world's way of living. We try to take a spiritual compromise. We try to tailor our relationship, my Christian faith, in my own customized way instead of biblical way. Good news is that there is a hope. You know, today, I, I kind of chuckle this. Verse 18, God said, When that day comes and you will cry out for the relief from the king you have chosen, that means Israelite will, last time they cried against the king was when they were in Egypt. But in the future, you will cry out Exodus in your own country because the king you ask me will actually make your life miserable. Exodus will be totally reversed in your own country. And then God said, I will not answer you in that day. Okay, I kind of chuckled. Why? Really? God doesn't answer? Our God is that mean? You know, you reject me, I reject you. Our God is a God of a conditional love? No. This is in the context of a warning. You know, it's like the parents. If you're not going to obey me, I'm not going to, you know, whatever. You know, parents, we do kind of things. Don't leave my house, no, I will, whatever. But our parents, you know, rest of the book of Samuel is this. So God gave them the kind of king they want. That was a king Saul. He was a warrior king. One head taller than other people. He's the Israel's version of a Goliath. He is a really strong guy. But he's a heart of coward. He really didn't help them. So when they realize, and, and then when they're fa failing and they're realizing they are making mistakes, who did God bring? God bring up David, man after God's heart. A shepherd boy, a teenager. And then even David failed, if you know, 2 Samuel, the famous scene of Bathsheba. And the, even the wisest son, the wisest king, Solomon, failed. So at the end of the, you know, this whole book of Samuel is what? Human kings fail. But at the end, what happened? The greatest hope is what? God sent Jesus Christ. According to Matthew, here is someone greater than Solomon. Because while all these kings are ta they're takers, Jesus is never takers. He's a giver. He came not to be served, but to serve us and give his life as a ransom for all. God prepared his king. So today, you and I, we saw the rest of the story since the Samuel day to today. We know who is the true king in our life. And the question remaining us is that is a Jesus is a king to you today in this coming day, or who is running your life, or other words, who is a king? Are you the king of your life, or Jesus is the king of your life? I hope we all make a Jesus king. 
Many Christians, evangelical Christians say, Jesus is my Savior, but you know, Savior, some people keep Jesus only as a Savior, not as a King and the Lord. Jesus is not only Savior, but Lord of the Lord, and my King and your King. And one day, we will see our King. And our King loves each one of us more than his own life. And Hebrew 12 said, He died on the cross with joy for our salvation. Let us make a Jesus King. Before summer is over and we go to the fall, let's make a Jesus King. Let us proclaim the world around us that Jesus is our King. Let's make a Jesus the Lord and King of our each house church and the forest church. 